Good morning, everyone. Um, it's good to see you all here this morning, and I'm thankful for the chance to study God's Word with you again this week. I want to pray again for our time uh, before we get started, so let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your kindness in our lives, for your goodness to us. We are thankful for your Word that is true and trustworthy. I pray as we study this morning that you would bring your revelation to bear on each one of our hearts and minds um, by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean to know someone? Uh, what does it mean to know something? Uh, is it emotional? Is it cognitive? Is it uh, relational merely? I mean, uh, connectedness, as in do I know everyone here? Um, how many degrees of separation does it take when, when I no longer know someone or something? In fact, there's a, a theory of knowledge, that six degrees of separation. I'm sure you've, you've heard of that notion where um, any two given people or things are separated by six or fewer steps in relationships. Uh, it goes a bit like this where you could connect uh, a friend of a friend uh, between any two people in a, minimum, in a maximum of six steps. So myself and uh, President Obama, there's only six relationships in between us, six steps uh, away from the two of us. Now, uh, whether you adhere to that kind of connectedness or not, uh, those kinds of questions need to get us thinking this morning about what does it mean to know Christ. Specifically, we're going to be exploring the notion of knowing Christ and the riches of knowing Christ. In fact, that's the title of the sermon this morning, The Riches of Knowing Christ. Uh, if you haven't turned there already, we'll be looking in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, uh, with the hopes that we'll walk away uh, with this assertion. Knowing Christ brings eternal joy through our earthly journey. Knowing Christ brings eternal joy through our earthly journey. I'm going to read the text this morning. Uh, follow along with me. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. By way of reminder, uh, what we covered last week, Paul is building on this uh, identification of so many things that he lost uh, in fact, it's a, an incredible list of human assets um, that included a view of self, uh, status, friendships, wealth, uh, assured position, comfortable, a comfortable position in life. So Paul sacrificed all these things. Uh, and there was a phenomenal reversal or flip of priorities in Paul's life. And what was Paul's secret? What, what, did, what was the reversal in Paul's life? Paul states that, our first point this morning, Paul states in verses 8 and 9, and this is our first point this morning, that knowing Christ exceeds the worth of all other things. 
And this idea really does build on what we talked about last week, where there is a surpassing value to, to Christ. We, we have all these things that we try to hold on to, these works of the flesh, uh, these status symbols. And when put in comparison to the singular gain of Christ, they're worthless. So knowing Christ exceeds the worth of all other things. Uh, the corporate loss of all things in life couldn't compare to the singular gain of Christ himself. And it begs the question even further, why, why does Paul make this statement? That's all good and well for me to make the statement that knowing Christ exceeds the worth of all other things. But how does Paul identify this? Why, why is this significant? How does Christ exceed all other things? So first off, uh, a subpoint: Christ changes my eternal standing before God. So first, Christ changes my eternal standing before God. And we find this in verse 8. Paul begins um, verse 8 with a series of particles, literally saying, yes, rather even. Um, I'm glad they didn't translate it that way because it's kind of confusing uh, when you put it that way. But simply understand it as this. It's a forceful introduction for Paul then to introduce something of, of great importance. And you're asking, at least I ask myself, maybe you're asking yourself, well, didn't he get through saying some pretty important things? Why is he always throwing these, watch out for these next important things? Why is he doing this? Well, uh, it's as if in the comparisons he's making in the previous verses weren't enough. He didn't go far enough. He needed to go further. So then what does he say? I consider loss, I consider everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. By saying that he considers everything to be loss, it's, he doesn't really consider everything to be worthless and without any kind of good or value. Rather, what he's saying is uh, his attitude toward them, his orientation of them was evil. Uh, and at, at Paul's conversion, at our conversion, and on a daily basis, we must drop the notion that we are somehow partners with God in our own justification. That somehow, somewhere along the lines, we contribute to this and, and it is something that we add to. Uh, when in reality, we accept the righteousness that, that Christ gives us. That the, it's Christ's righteousness that changes our position. It's not our adherence to, to any kind of, of external norm. Uh, such a reversal of perspective on life's uh, distractions even uh, calls to mind Matthew chapter 16. It's a well-rehearsed call to, the disi- to discipleship that, that Jesus gives. And verses 24 through 26, Christ says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Again, that kind of confusing what seems on a human level to not really make much sense. How can I gain by losing and lose by gaining? And uh, what's all this madness and nonsense? Well, in in essence, Paul is picking up on this notion that it doesn't necessarily make sense to us. It it pushes against everything within us that we can't contribute to this thing called salvation. Like there's nothing that we do that makes us better. Uh, And even more, the parable of, in Matthew chapter 13, of the treasure buried in the field where the man sells everything he owns for an empty field with treasure buried in it. So it doesn't seem to make sense. I'm sure if we would play that scenario out in the real world, if we saw someone we know make that business transaction, we would probably think you have lost your mind. And in so many ways, that's what this pushes back against in our hearts and minds. But we must continually remind ourselves that there is value in this because our eternal standing has been changed. 
Christ has changed my eternal standing before God. And then Paul uses this word knowledge. Uh, and I introduced the sermon this morning even talking about what does it mean to know. Well, this word for knowledge here is actually a, a common term that's used in, in worship, pagan worship even, in Paul's day that indicates a, a deeper re- sense of knowledge than just facts or rote memory. It was a kind of mystical knowledge, a relationship, a relational knowledge with any particular deity uh, that led to uh, salvation, in essence, uh, restoration, rescue, a good life. So what Paul is doing here, uh, to his original audience, he's leveraging a familiar term to us. He's revealing that this kind of knowledge is much deeper than facts or ideas uh, or notions or uh, assertions, even about a thing. It is a person, an individual who is alive. Uh, and even Paul says, my Lord, he, he gives a, a, a kind of possession in verse 8, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So there's a personal apprehension of Christ, a deep communion that this knowledge indicates. So when we, we think of this idea of knowledge, let's think of this throughout, throughout this sermon, throughout, as we study this passage. It's much more than ideas. Uh, it exceeds memory or, or facts, but it's rich fellowship with the living person of Jesus Christ. So then considering such a reversal of perspective again this week, of considering everything loss, it begs the question, how is Christ known to you? Um, what do you value in this life? I think maybe that's an even deeper question. Uh, it's hard to say, okay, what, how do I know Christ? That's maybe a little bit abstract. Um, is your relational rational? Is it fact-based? Um, I mentioned the six degrees of separation. How many degrees of separation might there be between you and Christ? Uh, do you experience Christ through a family member or through the sermon this morning or through something else? Or is, is Christ your own? Is it intimate? Is it dynamic? Is it relational? Is Christ a real person to you? Maybe that's an even better question. Or is he an idea? Um, a, a kind of a thing that's out there that we're Christians, and yeah, Christ is in that, but uh, he's not alive to you. Uh, such fundamental questions, I think, unmask maybe our deepest assumptions about the gospel. Uh, admittedly, though, drawing a deep relational intimacy on a person revealed large, largely through written word is difficult. Yet I remind you of this this morning. I remind myself of this. We do not generate this. So in so many ways, even this relational knowing is not something that we have to self kind of muster up the strength to do. It's a, a miraculous thing that the Holy Spirit awakens in us, communes with our spirit, and there is a deep intimacy that's cultivated over time. So understand that this kind of knowledge is wholly engaging of our hearts, our minds, and our bodies. Uh, also, what have you willingly sacrificed to know Christ this way? Paul, uh, again, he considers all things lost. All things aren't evil. All things aren't terrible. All things aren't bad. So that's, it's kind of easy to get rid of them. You know, I mean, it's easy to sacrifice uh, what might be selfish ambitions or lust or greed or pride. We, we do that. We at least recognize our need to do that pretty well. Uh, but let's remember that, that Paul willingly sacrificed good things. And, and here, it begs the question, what are you willing to give up in order to more, to more deeply know Christ? 
Um, are you willing to pass up uh, a hard-earned promotion uh, for the sake of being a better steward of your family or serving our church better? Um, do you deflect well-intentioned compliments because you know it feeds pride in your heart? What is the response of your heart when you consider your need to sacrifice your rights or just desserts? Uh, it's such an American concept, this idea of rights. Uh, frankly, if we were to receive what was fair, uh, let's be frank, we would all receive eternity in hell. So is it even a Christian idea to consider the idea of rights? The only thing that we deserve is hell. There is losing, something passively taken away from us, and there is sacrificing, something we actively do for the benefit of, of a greater thing a greater person in this case, Jesus Christ. Which more accurately describes your relationship with Christ, losing or sacrificing? So the first point this morning, Christ himself exceeds the worth of all other things. Paul, how can you make this statement? Well, how does Christ exceed these things? First, Christ changes my eternal standing before God. We are truly and completely and fairly condemned to hell without Christ but not only this, uh, Christ exceeds the worth of all other things by, secondly, Christ embodies true righteousness as an example for us to follow. We see this in verse 9. Uh, verses 8 and 9, and this, uh, there's a tension here in verses 8 and 9 that's found throughout Pauline writings that has been the subject of volumes of academic literature, uh, specifically, what does Paul mean when he describes the righteousness received through faith in Christ? That phrase, faith in Christ. Now, don't worry. I'm a PhD student, but I'm not going to recount the whole debate for you, uh, partially because I don't understand the ins and outs completely, so I won't embarrass myself or trouble you with that unnecessary idea, uh, necessary knowledge, but I'll simply break it down the way I understand it. Hopefully, it's helpful to you. Um, is this the faith, so faith in Christ, is this the faith granted in salvation whose sole object and foundation is Christ, faith in Christ? Or is this the faithfulness of Christ in his obedient life and death on earth? So faith of Christ or faithfulness of Christ. Hopefully you're thinking what I often think, especially when I'm doing academics. I'm not sure why those things are so different or so, so much in competition, right? Well, as it is, these two ideas are not competing or contradictory, but in many ways complementary. Uh, indeed, without the obedient righteousness of Christ on earth, there would be no salvation. Without Christ's work on our behalf, there would be no hope. There'd be no imputed righteousness. There would be no infused righteousness. This tension reveals, a, in fact, a deeper significance to our union with Christ that in some ways, maybe we overlook in our, in our Christian walk. Uh, what Christ gives us at the moment of salvation is not some future declaration that somehow guarantees us uh, no hell and guarantees us heaven. Uh, and, and in so many ways, we must seek the fullest, a lifelong identification with Christ by foregoing earthly prestige and embodying the righteousness of Christ to the world around us. For Paul, to gain Christ means that he will be found in him. And, and we actually just referenced uh, the eternal standing, this, this change of inter in eternal standing. This found in him phrase, certainly Paul is referencing that. We, we will be, when we stand before Christ, we will be 
accepted in the beloved. Um, but yet there is a close bond to this change with our day-to-day existence. In fact, Paul mentions it in this book. Uh, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He also says it in Galatians 2, It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Paul contrasts, yes, the prior notions of righteous behavior uh, that somehow motivate God to accept him, and he breaks that down. And for us, that means we cannot contribute to our salvation. But there is also a change in status that affects our day-to-day living. Uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, uh, recognized these two kinds of righteousness. Uh, He called them righteousness quorum Deo, don't be intimidated by the Latin, and righteousness quorum mundi. It's very simple. It means this. Righteousness before the face of God, so quorum means before the face of, and righteousness before the face of mankind. Uh, The first righteousness affects our eternal standing before God. Uh, Our change of status from alienated dead rebels to adopted living sons and daughters. The second righteousness, righteousness before the face of mankind, uh, reflects the second great commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves. The righteousness mentioned here is a quality of life and a declaration made on our behalf. So then it begs the question, what do you embody? Maybe that's a strange way to ask it. Maybe I'll ask it this way. Uh, What are you like? What are the most significant, distinguishable features of your life, Uh, your habits, your emotions, your desires, your passions? At your most basic, what are you like? Uh, Do you embody Christ in your daily life here and now? Jesus paid our debt in full, and our eternal standing has been changed. He gave us an eternal inheritance of infinite worth in the future and now. Matthew 18 provides a very helpful parable, a helpful illustration of this, uh, this kind of righteousness. When Jesus tells the parable of the king's servant, who owes uh, 10,000 talents. We're probably all familiar with the the parable. Uh, Understanding, though, that one talent equals approximately 20 years of wages, working wages uh, for the day laborer in Israel in that time, you begin to understand the kind of debt that this guy owes. It's pretty pretty significant. Uh, And and this gift that Christ gives us is not deferred. it's, It's a gift that is afforded to us here and now in the midst of life's heartaches, in the midst of pain, in the midst of difficulty, that's the kind of gift we've been given. That's the gospel. Our standing has been changed. A debt we cannot pay has been paid off on our behalf. Yet there's another portion to this story, a second half. That same man, forgiven 6,000 lifetimes, if you do the math on that, 6,000 lifetimes of wages, Uh, bumps into another servant who owes him a hundred silver coins, which boils down to one day's wages. He owes him a day's pay. And how does the servant respond? Does he forgive him? Because he's been given an an immeasurable level of forgiveness. A debt has been repaid he could never hope to pay off. No, he doesn't do that. He throttles the guy, chokes him, grabs his family, tosses them in prison to pay off the debt. Is that the kind of righteousness we've been given? Jesus goes on to explain in that passage, well, you've been forgiven, thus forgive this way. And Jesus is exemplifying, this is the kind of life you now live. 
You have been given salvation. It's a future declaration, but it has immediate consequences and immediate realities here, today, and now. What kind of righteousness do you possess? Are you cultivating a life of embodying the righteousness of Christ? Uh, Or, let's be honest, each one of us find ourselves in this place. Or are we being lazy with living out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Are you satisfied going to heaven? Yeah, good, I'm glad. But are you motivated to see anyone else join you? Uh, Maybe your family, friends, people you like. Uh, But we all have countless others that we bump into, families, individuals, who need the message of the gospel to change their standing before God, but they also need, have physical needs, temporal needs for love, uh, food, clothing, safety, and what are we doing now to live out the, the righteousness of Christ to these people? Christ himself exceeds the worth of all other things. And frankly, it's impossible to encapsulate the riches of Christ. I, I could never do it. Paul can't do it. But we are attempting to do it, right? We, it doesn't mean it's not worth trying to do because we must. Uh, there is a scope and richness to Christ that we could never grasp until we see him face to face. And even then, we will spend an eternity unpacking it. But Christ does change our eternal standing before God. And Christ embodies true righteousness as an example for us to follow. Also consider Paul, he talks about this righteousness from the law, this external standard that he hoped would bring internal change of disposition. Uh, Paul is pointing out here, no, Christ has offered us the, the, the true righteousness, the righteousness that is given to us that then works itself outside into behavior that affects the world around us. Not only this, but there's a second way. I have a second point this morning. There's a second way that Christ brings eternal joy through our earthly journey. This is found in verses 10 and 11, and it's this. Knowing Christ brings eternal joy and earthly suffering. Knowing Christ brings eternal joy and earthly suffering. Read verse 10 with me. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. As, uh, as we were reminded last week, the two key themes in Philippians, joy and unity. Uh, here, Paul returns to hint at the kind of joy that should exemplify the Christian's life, a, a disposition, that change that occurs when one's united with Christ. Uh, specifically, there's a resiliency and a joy that transcends life. And Paul points out then two realities of this eternal joy and earthly suffering. When he says in verse 10, he says, Christ's resurrection gives us hope even in dire circumstances. Christ's resurrection gives us hope even in dire circumstances. Uh, Conversion is, in fact, uh, throughout the New Testament, described as a kind of resurrection, of a, of a bringing from death to life. Uh, while Paul doesn't expound on this change of position here, he, he gives a beautiful picture of it in the second chapter of Ephesians, beginning in verse one, when he says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What's Paul saying? We were dead. We were condemned in our sinfulness. 
And then he continues in verse 4 with a very powerful conjunction. I love this conjunction. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It takes nothing less than God's creational resurrection power to affect a change in us. Again, Paul points out in Ephesians, we were dead. It wasn't like we kind of started to revive. We were only kind of dead or we had any signs of life. We, uh, no, we were dead. There's no, there's no other way to explain this. And yet God comes to us and gives us life by grace. There is resurrection power. And it, is this, and it is God's power, his life-giving power that gives us meaning and hope and, and the ability to go on, to carry on in life. Uh, such a power is abundantly sufficient to sustain us through even life's most difficult circumstances. Because I, I think often, at least for me, uh, and I, I can't look at anything but from my perspective in so many ways, it's easy for me to recognize how God keeps me alive physically. Um, in, in so many ways, I say, you know, you're right. I, I could, I, my life is fragile. I've watched a lot of Discovery Channel shows. I know how, how easy it is for me to die and disease and plague and family. You know, uh, we, are pretty, we live pretty fragile existences, right, uh, physically. But I think as Christians, we fail to understand the, how we are spiritually kept alive and revived and sustained by the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. So what empowers you to keep living each day? Because there's so much more to living than just physical maintenance, breathing. Um, there is a deepness to us, uh, a, a, especially when trouble comes, there is deep pain that we feel. I know each one of us have encountered, and maybe we are now encountering, deep despair, dire circumstances, gruesome disappointment. Because that's so much more than physical. It, it is physical, but it is so much more. It is deeper. What has let you down recently? Uh, are there desires that you have pursued with all of your being that have turned up empty? Um, how many of us have had failed relationships? You know, the Proverbs describes these difficulties, and this I love this imagery, as gravel in our mouth. So vivid for me, at least. I mean, for some reason, I can really attach to that. Uh, it also describes this kind of disappointment as, as pain in the marrow of our bones. So deep, deep pain. Proverbs 13 says, uh, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And this deference uh, that's referenced, referenced here is an ongoing, uh, endless series of disappointments. How, how often does that seem to describe our life, Right? Uh, an endless series of disappointments. So how is your heart sick today? How have your hopes been put off forever? And how do we carry on in the face of that? Well, there is a power in the resurrection of Christ that breathes life into our daily existence, that gives us joy. It's inexplainable. In so many ways, it's, it's very difficult and impossible for us to put a finger on it. But here, Paul has declared to us in our previous point, remember this, your position has been changed before God. 
Your position has been changed. Your standing is changed. Not only this, you, your life daily as you seek to live a good life, a righteous life, has been breathed with, with the Holy Spirit power, resurrection power, to live out and embody the righteousness of Christ in the world. So knowing Christ brings eternal joy and earthly suffering. How? By first connecting us with the power of the resurrection. So Christ's resurrection gives us hope even in dire circumstances. Not only this, but Paul identifies a second way, knowing Christ brings eternal joy and earthly suffering. And I've been been intentional with that conjunction, and earthly suffering. And, And that's this. Christ's fellowship grants purpose to our suffering. We find this in verse 10. So we're probably drawn to this to one word when you first read that verse uh, and hear my point, uh, suffering, right? So that's everyone's favorite word. We, we love suffering, right? Uh, realize and remember that if anyone was familiar with suffering, it was Paul. Uh, I won't recount the full list of, of life experiences and troubles and pains and circumstances, but Paul went, went through an extensive number of uh, persecutions. He was stoned, he was shipwrecked, um, Yet in in his first letter to the Corinthians, he begins the entire letter by stating this uh, near the beginning. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. It's easy to forget or become familiar with this reality in the Christian life. um, That our life is one of suffering. To be united with Christ is to experience suffering. Uh, And Paul describes his suffering in 2 Corinthians. And in many ways, he, he uses the same line of thinking he's used here where he contrasts this change of perspective on life's circumstances, on life's difficulties and, life's, and the, our ability to boast in our behavior and our, our uh, accomplishments in comparison to the eternal worth of Christ. He does this also in 2 Corinthians. And he then uh, culminates the entire discussion by stating this in verses 9 and 10 of 2 Corinthians 12. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So while suffering might be the first word that we're drawn to, I I would encourage you to also pay attention to this word fellowship and Tracy did a phenomenal job in our, the first sermon in our series of, of bringing this term to our minds, this idea of fellowship, koinonia. Uh, that's when Paul first references it here in the book, is in chapter one. And by way of a reminder, it's, it's a deep kind of, it's, more, it's not casual or often the way we would use it. So um, I think fellowship is often thrown around pretty casually, as most, most terms are. Um, you know, let's have some fellowship or you know, that church fellowship was fantastic. You know, it's not, it's not quite like that um, because Paul describes it in these ways. Uh, Philippians 1.5, your partnership fellowship, koinonia, in the gospel. That's pretty, pretty significant. Fellowship in the gospel. And it sounds great, right? Uh, and then one seven partakers, fellowshippers, koinoniers. I don't know how you'd say that in Greek. Um, with me of grace. Another great, man, that sounds fantastic, right? Uh, fellowship in the gospel, fellowship in the, uh, of grace, uh, participation in the spirit, he says in chapter two, verse one. All fellowship that we would likely say, man, that's fantastic. I, I'll take that kind of fellowship, that deep fellowship, right? But then he says here, the fellowship of his sufferings. Wait, wait, whoa, whoa. Okay, Paul, I mean, I'm with you on three of the four, 75%. That's not bad, right? 
I mean, if I was a baseball player, I'd be an all-star um, if I was batting that average. But who wants to join the fellowship of suffering, right? Um, is this necessary, Paul? I mean, do I really have to join this fellowship or can I kind of opt out of this knowledge, this kind of knowing? Um, the reality is, suffering is the lot of every true believer. I hate to break it to you. It was true for Paul. We've recounted some of his difficulties and it's true for us every day. So what's your perspective on suffering? Suffering is a fundamental component of Christian living. What, what aspect though, in the midst of your suffering of the gospel could be the most treasured to you? So realize that it's not just that uh, Paul is saying here, or I'm saying that, you know, you just kind of got to grin and bear it and, and kind of pluck up and, and pull yourself through. Remember, resurrection power, we have joy. We have something that, that sustains us in the midst of difficulty. So what part of the gospel uh, aspect becomes treasured to you? Is it Christ's perfect life that empowers you to overcome sin, temptation, difficulty? He lived a perfect life and we can embody that as he gives us the strength and the righteousness. Uh, is it his gruesome death alone, alone, dying, suffocating, bleeding to death on a, a rough piece of wood that grants some measure of meaning to the hardships of your life? Is it his resurrection power over death and sin that lifts your sights, that lifts your spirit to hope in something outside of yourself, to see beyond the challenges of your life? The person of Christ, he alone makes our faith unique and his resurrection makes our faith singular, knowing that fellowshipping with a living savior gives our life meaning. You know, we've reminded ourselves over and over again this morning of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. We've unpacked several ways. We see that here. Uh, but I feel there's one nuance uh, that maybe hasn't been as emphasized and it should be emphasized here. Every human being who has ever lived, who is living now and whoever will live, will know Christ in at least one of two ways. Realize that for far too many people, they will know Christ as a judge. Um, he will judge the unrepentant, the hard-hearted. He will righteously judge he is a holy judge. He is just in doing this. This is not unfair. Uh, he is a holy and perfect God. He'll judge the self-deceived religious types who think they're okay. The unbelieving to hell. And first off, if that doesn't motivate you to live a different kind of life, to do a little bit more, to reach out to those in your life who may not know Christ as Lord and Savior and not as judge, then I don't know what will, frankly. Um, but for others, for us, I hope everyone here, uh, he will be the Lord who has declared us righteous. We will know him this way. Meeting him will be the culmination of a life of sacrifice and serving, of relationship, a deep sense of knowing that has changed every part of our life. Meeting him will grant us great perspective on our life's toil. Our, the futility of our lives, because that's often what we feel, right? Life is futile, feels difficult. And in so many ways, that's why Paul culminates the entire section, verse 11, with the statement, 
And so somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Don't misunderstand his uncertainty here. It sounds at the surface level like he, well, I guess maybe somehow, I don't know how, I'll somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, that's, that's not what he's saying here. What he's pointing out to is the uncertainty of, of our ability to do this on our own. It's a miracle. I mean, how, how can we unpack this whole thing? How do we understand it? We can't. Only Christ grants us life now and in the life to come. So know this this morning. Know this this morning. Knowing Christ brings eternal joy through our earthly journey. Why? First, knowing Christ himself exceeds the worth of all other things because he changes our eternal standing and he embodies true righteousness as an example for us to follow. Second, knowing Christ brings eternal joy and earthly suffering. Christ's resurrection gives us hope even in dire circumstances and Christ's fellowship grants purpose to our suffering. Knowing Christ brings eternal joy through our earthly journey. Let's pray. Father, you have been so kind to us, uh, most obviously and most wonderfully in your son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth as a man, endured the futility of this life, lived perfectly, fulfilled the law, the law's demands to declare us righteous. And not only this, but he overcame death and sin and, and suffering, and he breathes life into our existence. May each day, each moment of each day, may we be willing to sacrifice whatever must be sacrificed, be willing to give up whatever must be put aside for the sake of knowing Christ. May there not be any degrees of separation between our hearts and Christ alone. Each one of us here knows what keeps us from full commitment. And I pray that your spirit would continue to break down the assumptions, presuppositions, and, and hard-heartedness of each one of us here, myself included. God, continue to show yourself faithful to our church and to each one of us as we live our lives on a daily basis. We are so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.